Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Students Talk Security podcast series. My name is Callie Whalen, and I'm a junior at Notre Dame studying economics, cybersecurity, studio art, and international security. Joining us today is Pamela Fierce Walsh, Senior Advisor on Conflict Minerals and U.S. Representative to the Kimberly Process within the Bureau of Economic and Business Affairs at the U.S. Department of State. Over the course of her career, Pamela has focused on critical national security issues, including security and counterterrorism issues, atrocities prevention, and humanitarian assistance. She has extensive experience in Africa, particularly the Horn. In her work on minerals, Pamela routinely engages private sector counterparts on supply chain concerns and obligations under U.S. law. She is a graduate of the Indiana University Maurer School of Law and the National Defense University's National War College. I'm really excited to discuss critical mineral supply chains and their implications for electric vehicle development and the U.S. economy with her today. Pamela, thanks for being here. Thank you, Kelly. It's awesome to, to be here with you. Great. So I'm going to jump into our first question. I know when I first started interning with your office last spring, I had no idea what a critical mineral even was. So I first just want to get some context established for listeners. So for people who aren't as familiar with the importance of critical mineral supply chains, what are some of the most important minerals to the United States and what purpose do they serve? And on top of that, how do these mineral needs compare with the United States and other countries with significant manufacturing presences? Got it. Okay. So that is a huge question, but it's a really important foundational one. So let's just level set. Awesome. A, a critical mineral is for the United States, something that has an economic or defense related purpose. And we happen to be import dependent on them. So there are formal definitions that you could dig out of say the US Geological Survey's website that goes into tons of detail on it, but that's really what we're talking about. And so the US Geological Survey pursued this very rigorous process whereby it established that there are 35 such critical minerals for the United States. For other countries, maybe they've got 37, maybe they've got 40, maybe they've got 30, maybe they don't keep a list, right? Um, it just depends on what their domestic situation is like. I also wanna say at the outset that critical minerals include things like tin, right? For tin cans, but it also includes things like cobalt or rare earths. Rare earths are critical minerals. Not all critical minerals are rare earths. And conflict minerals for the United States and for the European Union consist of tin, tantalum, tungsten, and gold. Gold is not a critical mineral for the United States. So um, a lot of times people will talk about rare earths and what they really mean is critical minerals writ large. Let's just do that. So what is all the hubbub about critical minerals um, for which there are a lot of, of really scholarly and newsworthy articles being written these days? I think the short version is that as we are looking toward a, a cleaner environment and a quote green economy, the products that we need in our lives to achieve those things, such as electric vehicles, are highly dependent on mineral contributions. Some key things you wanna think about there are the technology pieces that go into that advanced, uh, that advanced construction. So think about an electric vehicle battery that's gonna have a lot of lithium and cobalt and copper, um, just to name a few. 
Whenever you're talking about magnets, that's really when you get into rare earth discussions uh, more principally. Again, I'm not a geologist or uh, a metallurgist by any stretch, but I just hang around a lot of really smart ones that I hope are making me smarter too. Awesome, great overview. So my next question for you is, I read that each mineral has its own set of supply chain conditions. So I'm wondering which minerals have the most conditions and why they matter. So think about a supply chain for a mineral as it comes out of the earth. It comes out of the earth, where does it go? It has to get refined, it has to get processed, it has to get turned into some type of aloe so that it's usable because it's not just gonna be usable as a chunk of dirt coming out of the earth. And then it's gotta get manufactured into a product and then that product is either a finished product or it gets manufactured into a bigger product like a car. And all of those things happen in different locations. One country might have a plentiful supply of, you know, we'll just say bauxite, uh, which is basically aluminum, uh, might have a plentiful supply of that, but that doesn't mean that that country necessarily has an aluminum processing plant where it is exporting finished aluminum products, right? Those go to other places where other countries have specialized in the processing that is required to get that product a little bit closer to market. So when you hear people say that every mineral supply chain is different, that's really what they mean. Um, you know, where a geologic occurrence of a given mineral occurs it isn't necessarily related to where it's ultimately processed or manufactured. Okay, awesome. So with vaccine rollout and pandemic recovery underway, I'm curious as to how critical mineral supply chains have bounced back from the pandemic mm -hmm. and how things are different or not different now than they were in June when the mm -hmm. Biden administration outlined plans to address supply chain disruptions? Well, you know, I think we could go back even farther, right? You could go back five, six, seven years. You could go back four or five years ago when I would have conversations with private sector actors who would question why supply chain responsibility or being able to map your supply chain or be aware of the conditions in your supply chain were even necessary or relevant. Other companies might come to me and swear that they were doing it the best way possible and they knew everything they needed to know. And other companies were just absolutely insistent. It wasn't possible and they didn't need to know. I'm 110,000% confident that there is no company left in the world who thinks it's not important to understand their supply chain, whether that means where it comes from, where its strengths and weaknesses are, what its uh, delivery points look like or what the conditions are like inside that supply chain. So putting aside you know, the, the really wonderful timelines that have been accomplished in, in putting this pandemic behind us, I think there's one thing everybody can agree on. It's that the uh, importance of supply chains is very, very well known to private sector right now. Awesome. I'm also wondering about the environmental social governance movement and how that's playing into this supply chain mm -hmm. awareness. I'm curious how that balances out with the actual more economic based incentive to be aware of these supply chains for the private sector. 
Yeah, and and that's an, a really great question because it highlights the fact that they can be mutually reinforcing. They don't have you don't have to pick one over the other. Of course, there's you know there's one way that's going to take a little more time and effort, but then there are other ways that um, are going to lead you to problems down the line if you don't address them up front. Um, I think it's important to note that ESG environmental social governance indicators are not standard. They, but it is absorbed in a lot of kind of nomenclature about supply chains and the way they function. And there isn't one precise definition for high standards and how they work. That is, that is an area that under the President Biden's 100-day report under Executive Order 14017, that the Departments of Energy and the EPA, for example, have been tasked with coming up with sustainability standards for critical minerals. The reason why um, you know, ESG is not so uniform is because it hasn't necessarily been broadly uh, taken up into absorption. There isn't necessarily a, a central regulatory authority, nor do we necessarily want private sector to have that, nor does private sector necessarily want that, right? Sure. Um, so part of it is, is making the aspirational really mean something. Um, and, and that is just a, such an important part as, as we confront the, the issues of our time in terms of climate and energy. When you consider that if we don't get it right, if we don't get it the, the, the aspect of extraction, right? We're going to be trading petroleum-based problems for minerals-based problems, so. Definitely. So I read a week ago that General Motors pledged to roughly double its annual revenue by 2030 to about $280 billion. And they're counting on new electric trucks and cars for a majority of that growth. What are some of the key impacts of the shift from gasoline to electric on critical mineral supply chains, either ones you're already witnessing or ones you foresee happening? That's another great question, Callie. When people started talking about critical minerals as a thing that impacted international concerns and affairs a handful of years ago, we were really thinking about the technology of the future and people, the, 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 you know, the non, the uninformed non-geologists uh, in the room would say, well, what technology are you talking about? Right. And they'd say, there is a wave of electric vehicle transition coming at us. It's just a matter of time. And the more electric vehicles are uptake, uptook into the market, um, the bigger that wave is going to get. And so what was so encouraging about that announcement from General Motors was that they are one, recognizing where consumer tastes are going. And I think, although I cover foreign affairs as an American, I think that's a, a remarkable step forward for our own economic development and the job creation that that is going to lead to, but also because it recognizes that you know, this trend of consumer of consumer purchases is going to be something that has to be anchored to a, a strong, vibrant economy. What that means for mineral supply chains is kind of precisely what we were already talking about. You're going to need to get it right so that, that things like extractive, extractive issues for minerals don't become the new issue for petroleum of the day, right? So um, that's what I think it means. I think it's going to be a, a greater demand for these minerals coming out of the earth and we're going to have to be doing it right. For sure. Are there concerns within the government about that, how that increase in demand could potentially have adverse effects on the environment? You've talked a lot about like getting it right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So 
are there like protocols in place or at least like plans for protocols as to how to balance meeting that demand with environmental concerns? Yeah, so it's a it's a multi-pronged question because there are a lot of international efforts underway to make sure that um, you know minerals extraction can be done to the highest standard possible. One really great initiative that we have at the Department of State that I'm always proud to flag is the Energy Resource Governance Initiative, which the State Department created to encourage um, mining economies to adhere to the highest standards possible when they're extracting. Um, there are standards out there, right? Like there, there's OECD, there's ISO, there's you know the, the IRMA evaluation process. Individual companies will have their own high standards that they can have audited against third-party auditors. There are ways to do it, quote, properly. And the United States is constantly seeking to advocate for that. Domestically, um, I don't, I, you know, I, I'm not a, an expert on domestic issues in this area, but I'll say that, you know, U.S. environmental standards remain an incredibly important part of ensuring that as we progress, we're not undermining ourselves in other ways. So that in, that is going to involve, you know, a, a maintenance of environmental standards. Awesome. So you spoke a little bit earlier about rare earths and their importance, as well as the tendency of a lot of people to confuse exactly what they are. Um, our very own professor, Eugene Coles, actually wrote an article with the Council on Foreign Relations on rare earth elements and their relationship with national security. Professor Goltz, in his article, recognizes the strategic importance of rare earths, while also cautioning against overstating their threats in terms of what it means for the United States and its import dependence on other countries, as he believes to have happened in 2010 when China had its rare earth export embargo on the United States. So we're in 2021 now, looking back 11 years, what has the U.S. government learned since that episode in terms of crisis response and just general foreign diplomacy? And how are those lessons being applied right now to our relationship with China? Wow, another really big multi-pronged question, Kelly. Um, <laughs> this is what I would say. First of all, I haven't read the article, but I will look it up. I look forward to it. I think it's important to note up front that rare earths are not rare. Um, they are often co-located with other things, which makes their concentrations you know, better or worse, and therefore their, their plentiful qualities better or worse or easier or harder to get to. And refining them is can be very um, environmentally dangerous work. And so the, you know, what you're referring to from the, the embargo of 20, uh, 2010 is that I think we and international partners learn the lesson that we need to maintain supply chain diversification, resilient supply chains, for products of today, as well as to meet our, our demands in the future. So I think what we've, what we've done there is really uh, recognize that these are concerns we can't have to live through again. There was, you know, there was a bit of a blip, people adjusted, made different investments, recognized diversification as an important principle. And we're moving forward to make sure that we have, you know, strong communication with allies and partners who favor diversification like we do. Love it. So closely related, do you see the United States dependence on China for critical mineral imports changing? Are there initiatives to change that dependence or 
is it not as big of a deal as people have made it to be? I think we need to reframe the question a little bit because okay. I don't know. I mean, the question kind of assumes an answer that I, I can't say is entirely accurate. There is, okay. a heavy, there is a heavy domination by one country from the, from the supply chain extractive standpoint, whether it's a mine located in a third country or refining or, or manufacturing, for sure. Um, but if there's one thing referencing your earlier question that COVID laid bared is that we can't simply, you know, depend on one particular supply chain to exist as it has always existed and continue to meet our needs. So everybody kind of recognizes, hey, we got to diversify a little bit here. We can't just follow um, the lowest cost and, and sometimes the lowest standard to get there. And the second part of your question implies that there is some type of centralized approach that's going to solve all of these problems. Markets don't work that way. And while some actors may choose to centralize the economy and pick winners and losers, that is not typically how the United States has always conducted its, its, uh, its economic policy. Now, you can talk a lot about the need for government investment, and I think that's a different conversation that you know, can result in all sorts of incredible, incredible research and development. And that is indeed something that we function um, using. But I think I, we need to reframe the question a little bit because uh, otherwise, I mean, I don't see I don't see anybody, you know, suddenly ordering the ordering it to be different, right? Um, this type of, of very complex international commerce doesn't happen because someone waved a wand and decided to plunk a bunch of money down to fix it, right? Like that's not the way we got here. That totally makes sense. So continuing in this China vein, part of President Biden's Build Back Better plan involves competing with major players like China because China does have a very fast growing electric vehicle market. So I'm wondering how the United States can compete effectively in that international market and how your team's work advances that objective of competition. Right. Well, I think um, the GM announcement, which candidly I had absolutely nothing to do with, is a really good step in the right direction, right? Like, let's start making some electric vehicles. Let's get in the game. Right. Um, not, that we, not that we haven't been already, but I think that's, in, I mean, for a, a minerals nerd like me, that was an incredibly exciting announcement because I think it, you know, it really starts to put a little skin in the game, right, for, the, for this type of, of progress and sets us up for future success. Definitely. So you said that even though you had nothing to do with the GM announcement, um, I'm also wondering how the federal government is collaborating with private companies to boost electric vehicle use throughout the nation, if that is sure. going on, which I assume it is. Well, let me give you a, I, I don't think I can answer another major uh, big question from you, Kelly, but let me break it down into one small piece of the world that I work on through a public-private alliance that we just, that we developed in 2011. Uh, the Public-Private Alliance for Responsible Minerals Trade. It was established in response to Dodd-Frank 1502, which requires companies that use tin, tantalum, tungsten, or gold, or conflict minerals to conduct supply chain due diligence to ensure they're not funding armed groups in the, in the process of getting their minerals to market. And so by creating that public-private partnership, we work very closely with companies like Ford um, and Apple and um, important NGOs operating in the space. We have Signet Jewelers as a, as a member. 
that come together and say, okay, we support conflict-free supply chains. How can we work together, whether it's discussing with host governments, whether it's funding pilot projects, whether it's supporting um, the establishment of standards and supply chains that can actually be replicated so that the people on the ground are really benefiting from it. Um, That highlights some issues in artisanal scale extractives which can be an issue for minerals of the future. One of those is cobalt, which um, as you you know from an easy Google search has an incredible concentration in the Democratic Republic of Congo and a big problem with with labor issues and child labor. So the US government is working through our friends at the Department of Labor on some programs focused on how to eliminate labor, uh, forced labor or child labor from supply chains. So we've got programs like that that are attempting to kind of ameliorate the conditions on the ground that that deal with or remove those threats. But these are big problems, Kelly. I'm not short shrifting it. These are really complicated long-term development issues in a lot of sense. For sure. Well, I appreciate you taking a stab at them. (laughs) (laughs) I try. Um, So... I just thought of another question as you were talking. It's it's also a, a big one, but I've been thinking a lot about just like technological innovation in general and how it's totally changed basically everything about our world and our jobs and our personal lives. So in a lot of ways, I'm sure technological innovation has made it easier for the government to promote ethical supply chains. But I would also imagine that it brings new challenges. So I'm just wondering how the rise of technology has both facilitated and complicated that promotion. Right. So, uh, wow. I don't know that there's anything technology has not had that impact on. Um, And I'm not quite sure I understand what you mean by by the government having an impact on that. Um, But I'll say that minerals are an issue where certainly there are unforeseen consequences given that the shift in raw materials has, has just been drastic for them. But to your point about technological innovation, one way that manufacturers and engineers are trying to figure out dealing with electric vehicles is by consistently improving upon the battery design that requires certain amounts of of input, right? I don't think you're ever going to get lithium or cobalt completely engineered out of electric vehicle batteries, for example. But through, you know, enhanced technology, I think folks are working on getting cobalt out of it. I believe it's Tesla that made an announcement that they were going to produce like cobalt free batteries. Um, I'm maybe misspeaking on their their uh, outlook entirely, but technological innovation is something that can continue to engineer and refine the, the content that goes into these things. So what would be the benefit of producing cobalt-free batteries? Like, would that be from a child labor perspective or environmental? I mean, I think it's probably all of the above, but it's also all okay. of the above with, with, you know, caveats. Like, you know, that's somebody's job in some way, right? right. That's a, that's a moneymaker that doesn't remove the, that doesn't remove the human cost on the ground for individuals who need income, but it sure. does remove the economic incentive that promotes you know, however inadvertently environmental degradation, right? Um, Yeah. 
Okay. And there's, and we're also not even talking about the role of recycling and reusing these products, right? I mean, part of modern, part of modern manufacturing involves, you know, kind of moving past the concept of built-in obsolescence and moving toward a, a reuse and a recycling model that captures previously, you know, previously used parts or components and turning them into either the same component all over again or something totally different. And I think that we've shown historically, collectively, I think globally, um, the world has shown not enough interest in the the innovation there. But I'm going to remain hopeful that if there's one place we can remain innovative, it's in figuring out how to reuse what we've already used. Definitely. I agree. So this is another huge question, but where do you foresee in your role kind of operating at the nexus of the public and private sectors? Where do you foresee electric vehicle development going in the next decade? We see it taking off right now and the United States with the GM announcement, like really getting its head more in the game. But do you envision that electric vehicle adoption will be very widespread? Like are gasoline powered cars going anywhere? So a few things. Um, if I knew the answer to that question, I would be a billionaire is my <laughs> guess, but I will still hazard some guesses. I'll say one, you know, there are inherent limitations to the functioning of electric vehicles when it comes to temperature. And I've been told by individuals who live in very cold climates that no, like, no matter how supportive they want to be, there could be some limits on that technology which I, I'm not disputing, nor am I you know, getting into the weeds on, but I will say that that type of thinking is certainly not gonna help us get to our climate objectives. And it's certainly not gonna help us prevent future destruction and degradation. So when I think about the kind of infrastructure that we want to have for something like electric vehicles, and I'm, you're asking me to look into the future, well, I'm hoping I'm going to see like charging stations at some rest stops. You know, right. I drive, I, I'm from Indiana, right? Not far from South Bend. And I drive cross country fairly often given mm-hmm. where I come from and would be great if I could plug in and, you know, instead of having to fill up. And I don't think that that's right. too much to ask. I also think though, that over time, there was a time when smartphones came out, they were just like mind-blowingly expensive and every, they were just such a luxury item. And yeah, cause they were, and they are very fancy and they're little mini pocket computers. But in the 10 years that they've been on the scene or longer, everybody's adapted. There are more inexpensive versions. There are better ways to pay for it. You know, there are all of these ways that we've figured out how to absorb it and adopt it into our lives. I think it's going to be the same way the more everybody's buying electric vehicles. They're going to have to plug it in somewhere. Yeah, true. So I have one more question for you. And we've kind of been hinting at this for much of the episode, but considering the security risks of mineral supply chains, to what extent do these risks represent barriers to our climate change targets or goals? And how, how do the way that we access and circulate minerals, how does that play into our mm-hmm. climate change response? So I think the word risks is really loaded. Um, it could involve a, a lot of different potential vulnerabilities that you're referencing. And I don't want to, you know, take too many liberties with what you could mean. I will sure. say that miner- minerals are pretty plentiful. Um, yes, there are concentrations of some minerals that are better than others. 
I don't feel that we are so profoundly out of the game that there's this, you know, inherent systemic uh, impasse we're going to reach where, oh my God, we don't have anything that we need, right? I don't, I don't subscribe to that. And I don't think that's borne out in any of the, the research or the reporting that I've seen on it. But I do think that, you know, the United States owes it to our own future economic development, as well as maintaining strength with allies and partners who are, you know, market driven and focused on on improving this planet on which we live, which is not a hokey thing, by the way. It's not like a pie in the sky objective. It really does need to happen. Um, I think that we are I think we are in a good place for recognizing that, okay, we've got some stuff we've got to deal with here. And we're going to be able to do that. And I, so maybe I'll just end on that really high note. How's that? <laughs> I love it. Okay, great. Always down for optimism. All right. All right. So Pamela, thank you so much for taking the time today to participate in our Students Talk Security podcast series. It was really, my pleasure. I loved yeah, it. It was course. super fun. You were one of the best interns we ever had. And when you run for thank president- you. I hope I get invited to your campaign parties. So, oh, you will be. <laughs> uh, we we really appreciate your insights on these emerging economic issues. Seriously. So, as for listeners, if you want to follow us or listen to more episodes, please feel free to do so on SoundCloud, Spotify, or iTunes. Go Irish. Go Hoosiers. <laughs> If you'd like to follow the Notre Dame International Security Center seminar series, please visit our website at politicalscience.nd.edu forward slash ndisc forward slash or follow us on Twitter at hashtag nd underscore isc. Please note that opinions expressed in the seminar series are solely those of the participants or speakers, not of the International Security Center or the University of Notre Dame, which take no institutional position. Music for this podcast is licensed under Sample Swap.